God willing, we'll finish up our series tonight on tongues. What is the biblical gift of tongues and does it continue today? And then next week, God willing, next Sunday evening, I'm hoping, we will finish our study on spiritual gifts just generally and try to draw out what have we learned from this study on spiritual gifts, not only in a theological sense, but in a practical sense. How are you to regulate your spiritual gift? How are you to operate under that spiritual gift? And what encouragements and cautions do we have from the word of God? So that, Lord willing, next week will be our last uh, message on this for a period of time. But tonight, as I mentioned, I want to close out what we have now spent two sermon, sermons on to this point, on this doctrine, this issue of tongues. As we have been understanding, and as you knew before you came in here tonight, most likely, that is an extremely controversial passage. It is an extremely controversial topic. It is a subject of significant debate. And as you'll recall, when we started this series, I said we had three goals. At least I had three goals when I was preaching this series. The first was simply to limit the playing field. If you look into the realm of literature on tongues, whether that's scholarly literature, whether that's just on the web, whether that's in popular uh, 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 discourse around the Christian church throughout the world, you would find an incredible diversity of positions on what tongues are and what their function is or is not today. And so part of my goal, if you could just think of it like this picture, is to take a 100-yard football field and shrink it to about 10 yards. You just have that picture in your mind. that We're not trying to, to run the entire 100 yards. We're just trying to say, let's bring it biblically down to this area and to think about this subject in a much narrower and more biblically constrained model. The second goal that we had was to actually come to some conclusions on the topic. We want to try to understand not only what is perhaps the biblically reasonable or biblically colorable field that we could be uh, playing in, but also what is the actual position we think that scripture would have us to take on these issues. And then the third goal that we had was above and in all of these things, love, charity. In a world, a Christian world, in which there is such an incredible diversity of views on these topics, how are we going to live as Christians when our friends or our neighbors or our coworkers or our own family members have perhaps even a different position than we've come to on this gift of tongues. How are we to take biblical encouragement from that to continue on in what Paul says is the more excellent way? What is the more excellent way? The way of love, the way of charity. So those have been our goals that we have been seeking. And you'll recall that so far we've been attempting to limit the playing field. And I'm just going to check off a couple of things that we would do by way of review to suggest how the hundred yard field that we see in contemporary Christianity should really be limited down, I think, biblically to a much more constrained field of play. One of the things we have seen so far is that the legitimate gift of tongues was a manifestation of the spirit biblically. It was the spirit manifesting, showing himself through your speech. 
Another thing that we saw biblically when we we're shrinking the field is that it is a legitimate gift. Paul lists it in 1 Corinthians 12 as something that truly could be used to edify the body of Christ. What is the purpose of a spiritual gift? Is it primarily to edify you? No. The purpose of a spiritual gift, your spiritual gift, is primarily to edify others. We saw this was a legitimate spiritual gift. What else did we see? We saw that tongues, the gift of tongues, was not universal. And it was not a universal sign of the baptism or what might we, we might call the filling of the Spirit. We see examples in Scripture when people had the Holy Spirit descend on them, such as in Acts 8 at Samaria, and there is no record of speaking in tongues. We see Paul himself at his salvation. We have, I think, three different descriptions of Paul's salvation throughout the scriptures. Not one of them mentions when the Holy Ghost came upon him, was there any speaking in tongues? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, we see Paul saying rhetorically, asking the question, do all speak with tongues? And the obvious answer in context is no. So we've, we're trying to shrink the field here to say that, that those who would say that your reception of the fullness of the Spirit in your life must be accompanied by the gift of speaking tongues, in, in my view, respectfully, simply is not credible biblically on the subject. Another way that we've tried to shrink the field is to say that those who would say that the gift of tongues is only relevant to a kind of evangelistic ministry, that the goal of tongues was so that people could, early Christians could speak in languages they'd never learned to be able to spread the gospel, is simply, again, in my view, outside the relevant field of play. Because we see even in Acts, in Acts 10 and Acts 19, two of the three places when tongues are mentioned, there are not even unbelievers present, as best we know, when this gift of tongues was exercised. What was another way in which we tried to shrink the field? We understood biblically that a tongues gift, a legitimate tongues gift, is not, and in my view cannot be, a kind of ecstatic utterance in the sense that it is a, a it is a, a meaningless set of sounds as if similar to when my baby now simply produces unknowingly sounds she is making sounds but they have no meaning attributed to them and there is a view in particularly the Pentecostal world, that this kind of tongue speech is effectively an overflow of the Spirit such that I simply start, I'm almost out of control to start making and framing sounds with my words out of an ecstasy or a fervor or a kind of frenzy. And we saw biblically that this just simply does not appear to be the case. Because in the three examples of the book of Acts, they are connected to a kind of meaning underlying it. In Acts chapter 2, we saw that the speaking in tongues was connected to prophecy. Peter said, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Joel said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So it's connected to meaning. Acts chapter 10, it is said that these ones on whom the Spirit fell began speaking in tongues. And what were they doing? They were magnifying God. They had a meaning attached to it. 
In Acts chapter 19, it says that they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Again, a connection to meaning. And we said that comes through in 1 Corinthians 14 too. What about in 1 Corinthians 14? Scripture says that legitimate tongue speaking can be interpreted. If it's interpreted, it can be profitable and it can be done in in assembly. What is Paul, what is the very meaning underlying that? If language can be interpreted, it must have what? Meaning. It must have something underlying it that has a message connected to it. If I were to hear my one-year-old begin babbling, I would not expect necessarily or perhaps my even infant that there was a message that was intending to be communicated there. There may be something that is desired, but I would not say simply, I'm going to interpret this babble. I would simply be what it is. It is babble. And I think in the same way we see consistently biblically that Paul is assuming and Acts is also presenting that true, a true legitimate use of tongues will have a message connected to it. You say, what is that message? Well, what is the gift of tongues? A gift of tongues is the manifestation of the spirit to speak a language you have never learned. Now you say, what would that include? It would include the Holy Spirit of God speaking through your mouth or speaking through your spirit through your mouth with a language you've never previously learned. And again, last time we a little bit punted on this idea. Is this only human language? Is it possible that God, God could speak through us some form of divine or angelic language? I think we simply have to say we don't know. The scripture isn't clear. All 1 Corinthians 12 tells us it's various kinds of languages. Various kinds of dialects, various kinds of messages communicated through this miraculous gift. Okay, so we've tried to shrink the field. We've tried to say, here is the appropriate biblical scope of this gift of tongues. And now tonight, we come to perhaps the most challenging question of all. And one where really most significantly the ground is disputed among Bible-believing Christians today. And that question is this. Does the legitimate biblical gift of tongues persist and continue to today? How are we to view those who purport to speak in tongues today? Are we to say that there is room potentially for that in the word of God? Or are we to take a different view and the title of the message tonight is simply going to be Seeking Clarity on the Gift of Tongues. Seeking Clarity on the Gift of Tongues. And what I want to do tonight is look at some of the arguments uh, for and against the cessation of this gift of tongues. And then ultimately try to glean, even from the passage that Kevin read for us tonight, what our position on this very important question should be. Let's start, first of all, with what I'll call the interpretive challenge. The interpretive challenge when it comes to the gift of tongues. There are many today who hold the position that the gift of tongues has ceased to have any relevance for the modern Christian church. 
And in fact, if you were to look back through church history before 1900, this would have been effectively the sole position of the Orthodox Christian Church. That isn't to say there weren't others who had different views. There weren't others, perhaps even sincere Christians who saw it differently. But this was certainly the predominant position. And indeed, in some uh, aspects, in some places of time and some areas would have been the truly sole idea. Now, I want to understand this position to suggest that the gift of tongues has ceased. And one of the most predominant reasons given is a textual one. I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We've gone over this passage before, but not specifically looking at the gift of tongues. Look with me at verse number 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul is speaking of the of the continuing existence of love, the eternal existence of this agape love. He says, charity never fails. It never runs out. It will be eternal. But whether there be prophecies, remember there's one spiritual gifting, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, same idea, same word for that gift of tongues, they shall what? Cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And so those who would support the idea that the gift of tongues has ceased would say, look what Paul says in verse number eight. If there are tongues, they will cease. In fact, the dominant phrase used to describe someone who holds this position is a cessationist. They believe that tongues, the gift of tongues has ceased because Paul said they would cease. Now, the question that comes is, when? When will tongues cease? And those who would hold this cessationist position might indeed say, well, let's see if we can glean any evidence from the history of the church. Can we glean any contextual and historical evidence? Those who point, who hold this position say, it's clear that tongues ceased at the end of the apostolic era. That is when the last apostle died out with them, died out the gift of tongues because tongues were given as a special miraculous sign of the work of the gospel and of the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. We saw even in 1 Corinthians 14 when scripture says that tongues are for a sign to the unbelievers. God prophesied in the Old Testament that his people Israel had rejected him. They would continue not to hear him. And so God would give them a sign and th there would be people speaking to them of an entirely different language. And there are those who say that sign was fulfilled in the early days of the church. There is no longer any need for them. Not only in addition to that aspect, they also point out that historically, the dominant position throughout the New Testament church is that the tongues have ceased and that the gift of tongues was not exercised. I think it's fair to say that through the history of the church, most of those who have spoken in tongues um, before 1900 would be connected perhaps to heretical groups, to those who had unorthodox positions. It was not in the mainstream of orthodox Christianity. In fact, here's some, something that John Chrysostom said. 
from, as you may remember, the, the wonderful preacher, the golden-tongued preacher. My father used to love to quote John Chrysostom. He says of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, this whole place is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. Here is someone in the early days of the church speaking to the view, at least at that time, the dominant view, I would say, that this kind of tongues gift no longer occurred. But not only then historically is this position given, but also contextually. The argument is, is raised, and I think has some significant persuasion to it, that so much of the connection of the exercise of the tongues gift today is with other doctrine and theology that is wholly unorthodox, if not outright heretical. We see even in some corners and significant corners of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, a connection to very, very dangerous heresy and, 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 and really significant errors in doctrine. In fact, some of those who are, are sounding the most important, the most, the most significant clarion call of warning on this front are those not even in America. If you went to those who are preaching the gospel faithfully in Africa, you would hear them crying out to say, this issue, this, this, um, this form of Pentecostalism that is so prevalent in Africa today is doing horrific damage. You say, why? Because so often today, this branch of Pentecostalism that I'm particularly referring to here is connected to the prosperity gospel. And the connection that is running rampant, not only in Africa, but in other areas of the world, is this toxic combination of this false theology in terms of the prosperity of those whom God blesses. If you walk with God, if you follow him, if you, if you are filled with the spirit, God will bless you. Combined with a kind of ecstatic frenzy that characterizes worship, that is marked as perhaps we have seen by speaking in tongues or at least purporting to, that there is a real connection to heresy that those in in orthodox Christian circles have said, we got to sound the alarm. This is a toxic stew of doctrine and is doing great harm to the spread of the gospel across the world. And so not only is there's historical sense that where have tongues been in the history of the church? Not only that, where have tongues been in the great revivals of the church? Where was tongue speaking in the first great awakening? Where was tongue speaking in the second great awakening? If there was an unambiguous move of God across these times where people were indisputably filled with the spirit, where is the evidence that they were speaking in tongues. They add to that the context that we see around the world of some really significant doctrinal errors. And there's also urged a theological reason for that position. Now let me, let me in, uh, introduce it to you this way. We have said biblically, at least my conviction, that a legitimate gift of tongues is communicating not babble, but a message. A message from whom? From whom? God. It's a manifestation to the spirit. 
That is to say, if I'm legitimately exercising the gift of tongues, that means God is communicating with my spirit in a really important way. That's why Paul says, if that is interpreted, it will edify the church. Not that it's babble, but because God is saying something. Now you see the connection. Remember, we've noticed the connection between prophecy and tongues. Acts chapter 2, what are they doing? They're speaking in tongues. What does Peter say they're doing? They're prophesying. Why? Because God was speaking through them. Acts chapter 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul says, are you exercising the spiritual gift of tongues? Is there an interpreter present? Well, then good. I put it right on the same level as prophecy because it'll edify people. Now, someone would say, and I think there is significant reason for this position. We've said something similar when it comes to prophecy. What what position have we taken biblically on prophecy? The prophetic office In my view, those who are ordained of God to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and give verbally inspired words. My view is that does not continue today. Because scripture tells us in Ephesians 2 that God laid the foundation of the church of God in the apostles and prophets. That foundational role, in my view, one who can legitimately get up and say, thus saith the Lord with new inspired revelation, infallible words from God, is simply not a part of our day and age today. And so the position would go something like this. If someone is speaking in tongues and receiving a gift from God, a a, a words truly from God that if interpreted could give edification to the body of Christ. That sounds a lot like infallible new revelation from God. That sounds an awful lot like a kind of inspired prophecy that we would reject in other contexts. And therefore, anyone who would get up and say, I am speaking with tongues, I am receiving direct infallible revelation from God communicating with my spirit, That person might say, in addition to these other reasons, that would be another reason why the gift of tongues has ceased. So here's an interpretive challenge. Scripture lays out this gift of tongues. We see potentially textual, historical, contextual, and theological reasons why this gift has ceased. And that is why I believe that this position truly is a colorable position. It is a reasonable position when one looks at the entirety of the evidence. But I want us to see, secondly, a biblical command. We've seen an interpretive challenge. We need to look, secondly, at a biblical command. And I encourage you to open your Bibles to verse number 39. Verse number 39 says, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Now, do you notice how Paul treats those two things differently? On the one hand, he says, I want you to crave, to earnestly desire to prophesy. And do you know what else I'm telling you to do? Don't forbid people to speak with tongues. Don't tell them not to. Now, Let's think about the way that Paul is presenting that. Forbid not to speak with tongues. I want you to imagine 
that a babysitter was coming over to our house for one of Tabitha and my date nights. And as that babysitter came into the house, we were giving them instructions on what to do with our children when we were gone. And if we were to say to the babysitter, now listen, I don't want you to forbid Lars from playing basketball. Lars can play basketball if he wants. Don't forbid him from playing basketball. What would I be communicating to the babysitter? Number one, I would not be communicating full affirmation for Lars to go play basketball. I would not be looking at Lars and saying, Lars, I want you to go play basketball. I wouldn't be saying that. But neither would I be denying him the opportunity to go play basketball. I would not be affirmatively telling them to, but I also would not be saying, Lars, don't go play basketball. What would I be doing? I would be simply be leaving an open door. I would say, if Lars wants to go play basketball, he can. Don't tell him not to. Now, what I'm suggesting here is that when Paul gives an express command to the church at Corinth to say, forbid not to speak with tongues, he's doing the same thing. He does not say to the church at Corinth, please go out and speak with tongues. You all should be doing this. You all should be attempting to try to find a way to do this. He doesn't do that. Nor does he say, subject to his limitations that he's put on this topic that we've studied, nor does he say, don't you dare. What does he say? He says, I'm leaving the door open. Don't tell people they can't. Forbid not to speak with tongues. Now, why is this relevant for me? It's extremely relevant because we run into two temptations when it comes to interpreting the word of God. One is a temptation that we are all very familiar with and that we have been well-trained, I think, as a church, going all the way back to my father and his faithful preaching ministry here. We have been well-trained not to interpret scripture as being gray when it's black and white. I hope all of us are sober and clear-eyed that when the word of God says thou shalt or thou shalt not, it doesn't matter the kind of historical and contextual and other points I want to raise to it. I simply say the word of God doesn't allow me to be gray on this issue. It's black and white. I don't care how much the culture wants to say that fornication is a totally acceptable practice for the church today. If the Bible says thou shalt not, it's black and white and I'm not going to try to make it gray. Let me give you an example of, I think, a relevant one today. We have seen, I think, before scripture speaking clearly on the idea that leadership in the church and in the home is to be male leadership. And of course, that idea today is anathema to our modern culture. You can just look at the news to understand why that would be so remarkably offensive. And I don't know if you've been tuned in to those, even in the Christian church, who have been, who have been criticizing this, path, this part of the Bible, this, in my view, clear black and white teaching of the Bible. Do you notice the kind of arguments that they bring up? They bring up practical ones. Well, guess what? This teaching is associated with those who support the subjugation and even the abuse of women. Are you saying that you're going to stand on behalf of that truth that is being used by all these groups that are doing great harm to the church? Well, guess what, friends? 
we should stand against those who are using passages and twisting them to their own selfish purposes on these matters. We should stand with clear voice and say, you're right, that's wrong. And that won't happen on our watch. But does the fact that a passage is being misused mean that therefore we can take what is clearly black and white in scripture and say, it's gray. Eh, I'm not going to take a strong stand on that. No, no. Nor can we take even more broad theological arguments as sometimes we hear. But isn't it true that men and women are, are equal at the foot of the cross? Yes. Isn't it true that we are equal before Jesus Christ? We all have our path to him. The gospel is level. Yes, all of those things are true. It doesn't mean that I take what's black and white in scripture and say, you know, I'd rather that be gray. I hope all of us on issues like these are are aware of the secular trend, even within the church, to do just that. But I want to suggest that there is another temptation that we can fall into. We can make black and white what the scripture intentionally leaves gray. Where a door is open in scripture, we may have reason to want to try to shut it. Just like we may have reason to see a door closed in Scripture, we say, I really want to open it because there are good reasons to do it. We say, no, in the same way, we have to be so careful that we are not looking at an intentionally open door in Scripture and saying, God, are you sure you know what you're doing here? God, I'm, I'm seeing some people misuse this. God, I'm seeing some people perhaps take this the way that I don't think is a good idea. So you know what, God, let's just close the door. Let's just close the door and make it really clear. You see, both of these are temptations. What I want to suggest to you is that we need to be very careful when we hear the word of God say unambiguously and clearly, forbid not to speak with tongues, that we say, God, are you sure about that? Are you sure? Now, it may be true, and certainly someone would respond to me in this regard. They would say, well, I'm not telling someone that they can't speak with tongues. I'm just saying the gift has ceased. God is the one who has said they, they can't speak with tongues. Okay, if that position is sufficient for you, by all means, I will say, as a pastor whose job it is to interpret the word of God, I feel that distinction is pretty fine. If I were to tell you unambiguously that I believe this gift has passed from the scene entirely, in my view, I would be coming dangerously close, if not already crossing the line, to forbidding you to speak with tongues because in that regard, I would be saying any speaking with tongues is deceiving. It's just a deception. It's not the case. Now, if we have this text in scripture in which Paul is giving an unambiguous command, we should ask ourselves, is there a contrasting one that we might say, this gives us some weight on the other position. This allows us to take a biblically solid cessationist view and we can use other scripture to clarify this one. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we said that the textual argument comes back in large part to verse number 8 of chapter 13. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 9. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. Now, do you see the connection here to tongues speaking? He has said, if there are tongues, there will cease. And now he has said, when I was a child, I spake like a child. I, I used words like a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. So there's a connection not only to tongues, but also to prophecy and knowledge. What the other spiritual gifts that he is laying out here. He said, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. We went over this several weeks ago in the context of love. And we really drew out of this text that what Paul is saying is all of the ways that we exercise our spiritual gifts are necessarily immature ways. No, not immature that you can't be a mature Christian and exercise spiritual gifts. I don't mean that. I mean that they are effectively like a child's use of his faculties. It is speaking like a child. It is understanding like a child. It is knowing like a child. Why? Because all of that is only partial. Just like my toddler only has a very, very small partial grasp of the world around him. And therefore it limits everything about his speaking and comprehending. So we, when we're presented with all the mysteries of God, God, we have even in this word of God only a partial grasp. We are like children speaking and knowing and understanding. And that's why when Paul says, when the perfect is come, the, that which is in part will be done away, he's not talking about the completed canon of scripture. He's talking about the perfection of all things, in my view, that Jesus is going to bring about in the world. Because only at that time, when I am known, when I know as I am known, Paul says, will I have a grasp of all of God's mysteries, all of God's knowledge, all of God's revelation throughout all eternity? So let me ask you this question. If you were a Corinthian sitting in the assembly of believers in the first century, and you received this epistle from Paul, and Paul laid out his argument for why love is superior to even the most excellent gifts because love will last eternally, but all these gifts are only temporary. Do you think one person in that assembly would have said, oh, what Paul's getting at is that tongues are going to cease of themselves at the end of the apostolic age? I sure don't think so. Sure doesn't appear that way to me. In fact, I think almost more credibly, this passage suggests that tongues, like other spiritual gifts, may indeed last until the perfection of when Jesus Christ brings all things to pass at the final culmination of his redemptive plan. In other words, I think if I were to weigh these interpretations, I would find more persuasive the one that says, this is evidence that this gift is, will continue. Not that it is evidence that this gift will cease. Because Paul is clearly connecting the cessation of these gifts, in my view, 
to the ultimate perfection of the redemptive plan of Christ when all of us are perfect and complete in him eternally. So, my question for us tonight then is do we see clear evidence in the scripture that would cause us to overlook or contextualize the command in chapter 14 that says, forbid not to speak with tongues. And my suggestion to you tonight from my own view on this subject is the answer is no. No. And therefore, as a pastor, my conclusion on this subject is simply this. I will not forbid to speak with tongues. I simply cannot see a biblically sound conviction that I can reach that as a pastor I could say on the basis of the word of God thus saith the Lord this has indisputably ceased and the reason I draw that conclusion is part of my general conviction that when it comes to the word of God we should interpret most carefully what is express over what is implied you know it's very interesting that is true even in our law. I was just looking at some case law recently. We had, were appealing a, a, a judgment that a court entered against our side that we think was in error. And there's case law that expressly says the way we interpret the law is we say if there's something express, if there's a command, you apply that over what is simply seems to be inherent or implied and in this sense, I say, I believe it's a reasonable position. I believe it is reasonable and colorable and fair-minded people could come to that conclusion that there would be an implication in our scripture that this gift would cease. Nonetheless, when it comes to this express command of the Bible, forbid not to speak with tongues, I do believe that we as Christians should allow that express command to trump what may be implied. Now, let me close with this. I just started this message by saying all the challenge, challenges and all the very good reasons to be extremely concerned about the exercise of a purported gift of tongues in our modern church today. And I have just come to a biblical conclusion that based on this command of scripture, we should be very, very wary of saying, I forbid to speak with tongues. So what does that mean? How does that mean that you and I should relate to those who purport to speak with tongues? I can tell you honestly, I do not speak with tongues. I have never had that gift. I do not expect that I ever will have that gift. So how am I to relate and what am I to say to those who purport to be exercising that gift? That is why we need to look thirdly at some doctrinal correction. Doctrinal correction. Friends, this is absolutely critical. I want us to think about the context of 1 Corinthians 14. Remember what I said? Forbid not to speak with tongues. Do you notice how Paul treats Prophecy, radically different from tongues. He says, I want all of you to prophesy. Covet earnestly to prophesy. He says, oh, tongues, forbid not. Don't covet to speak with tongues. Don't seek to speak with tongues. Just forbid not. 
don't tell people they can't. Now, why is there the difference between these two things? It's because from this context, the Corinthians were completely messed up when it came to the exercise of tongues. They needed to be corrected. What was the problem with tongues speaking at Corinth? It wasn't spiritual. How do we know? Because it was marked by pride, by a lack of love, by selfishness, by a desire to be viewed as important and prestigious. In fact, it was everything that scripture tells us the spirit is not in what he produces in our lives. But notice that Paul does not say, based on these abuses, everyone should just stop speaking in tongues. No, he says, let him speak to himself and God if there's no interpreter. I'm not telling him he can't speak to himself and God. Go ahead. But I'm going to make sure you're doing it right in the church. I'm going to make sure I correct your abuses. What I want to suggest to you tonight that I, in my view, the most appropriate biblical response to the absolute abuses and heresy and cause for concern throughout the Pentecostal world, particularly around the world, is not to close a door that, in my view, I don't feel comfortable closing according to the word of God, but simply to lay out clearly the biblical guardrails that Paul himself puts in place. What are some of those doctrinal corrections that we need to hear today for any purported exercise of this gift of tongues? The first is the extent of tongue speaking. I encourage you to write these down. Use them to, to, to allow yourself to think biblically about these issues. What is the extent of tongue speaking? We've already said it. It's not everyone in the Pentecostal world. When you hear, you do not have the fullness of the Spirit. You have not been baptized in the Spirit. In fact, you may not even be saved if you have never spoken in tongues. The right answer is, that's wrong. That's not the Bible. There is today a pernicious oneness movement in the Pentecostal world that rejects the Trinitarian view of God that says effectively that Jesus Christ is, that there's, there's God that manifests himself in three persons, but really, truly, it is not a Trinitarian view. It is a oneness view of God. And in fact, in even some aspects of this, there are those who hold that if you never speak with tongues, you're not saved. You're not born again. What do we need to do? We need to stand up clearly for the word of God and say, that's wrong. Not all speak with tongues. In fact, the entire purpose of what Paul is doing here is to say, you're doing it all wrong. Another doctrinal correction is needed is the importance of tongue speaking. Not only the extent of tongue speaking, but the importance of it. It was very interesting to me. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is giving a list here of the, of the uh, gifts of the Spirit. He says in verse 8, For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Friends, where does tongues fall on the list of important spiritual gifts? 
Where does it fall? Last. You think that's an accident? Go down to verse number 28. Look at verse number 28. Where do tongues fall in the list of the gifts mentioned in verse 28? Where? Last. Look at verse number 29 when Paul begins saying his rhetorical questions about gifts. Do all hold these? Where do tongues and the interpretation of tongues fall in that list? Last. Do you think Paul wasn't sending a message to these folks who thought tongues was absolutely the most important and the most flashy and the most showy gift that they had? Do you know what message that our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters need to hear today? What is the biblical evidence? It's that of all the gifts that Paul mentions, tongues is last. And Paul is attempting to say, you're putting way too big a deal on this. In fact, we don't even see this just here in 1 Corinthians. Do you know that in every other teaching epistle of the New Testament, tongues isn't mentioned once? When Paul is giving his, 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 his pastoral and fatherly counsel to his son in the faith, Timothy, or to his son in the faith, Titus, tongues isn't mentioned once to be regulated in the churches. What do we see? Mark we see tongues prophesied, predicted by Jesus. Acts, we see tongues d demonstrated in the, in the redemptive plan of God in the early church. What do we see in 1 Corinthians 14? Tongues described. No other place. No other place in our New Testament. I think it is, as Alistair Begg has said famously, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. When you take something that is mentioned not as a normative in scripture, but as something that is in its context in teaching here, attempting to be minimized, and you make that a central feature of your own spiritual or doctrinal life as a church, beware. The importance of tongues we see here in 1 Corinthians is minimized, and it should indeed be continued in that same direction. In fact, there's a reason for this. Why do you think that Paul lists tongues as the least important spiritual gift in this list? What is the purpose of spiritual gift, of a spiritual gift? What is it? We've studied this for many weeks. What is the most important purpose? To edify whom? Others. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, if there's no interpreter for this tongues gift, are you edifying anyone else? No. So what is he saying? You can go ahead and speak to yourself and to God. It may edify you. He said, he that speaks in tongues edifies who? Himself. But what's Paul saying? Don't put that, don't compare that to the gifts that edify and lift up others. You see, this necessary correction on the importance of tongues is desperately needed in our Christian circles today. What about thirdly, the mode of tongue speaking is in desperate need of correction. We've already said this is not an ecstatic utterance, but it is necessarily a message that could be interpreted, that has meaning to it. You say, why is that important? Because the next area of doctrinal correction is the manner of tongue speaking. Do we remember what we've seen already biblically? Tongue speaking is not something that you get overwhelmed by the Spirit and you can't help but speak. How do we know that? Because in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I'm giving you rules 
for regulating tongue speaking in the local church. And he says, let tongue speaking be done at most by two or three. Do you know what that means? That means a person who is purporting to exercise the gift of tongues is in complete control of his or her faculties. Why? Because they can count. I'm number four. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be quiet. Let him speak to himself and to God. Friends, we need to say this clearly and we need to say this consistently. There is no place in our Bible for the kind of frenzied, uncontrolled example of an apparent gift of the Spirit, whether tongues or anything else. When we see barking like dogs, when we see this kind of frenzy that manifests itself in the most extreme forms of behavior that are completely out of control, but are justified because I'm being under the control of the Spirit, we say, no. Friends, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It is temperance. There is no place in our Christian movement today to look at that kind of nonsense and say, the Spirit made me do it. Because no place in the scripture, in my view, do we see this kind of example of an uncontrolled, frenzied exercise of any spiritual gift, much less of tongue speaking. That's not to suggest that any exercise of our gifts may not have emotion with it. They may not have passion with it, but they are fundamentally under control, not out of control. Another doctrinal correction is needed is the message of tongue speaking. Remember what we've already said. We've already taken the position that any prophetic office of those who would get up and claim infallible divine revelation from God that should direct our lives, we are to say, no, that is not how God operates. We are not to despise prophesying. We're not to despise words of others that may have spiritual effect in our lives. We are not to avoid being sensitive to the direction of the Spirit for how we speak even now today. But I also, I just want to encourage you, if there is any evidence in our Pentecostal or charismatic circles or even in this church of someone purporting to exercise a gift of speaking in tongues and someone else gets up and say, or they themselves say, I interpreted this is the divine revelation of God to, to us, anyone should say, that's simply not scripture. That's simply not consistent with what we see, again, in my view of the work of God today. One more area of doctrinal correction is the subjection of tongue speaking. The subjection of tongue speaking, as Paul makes clear, is that it is always and entirely submitted to the revealed will of God. And I, I, I just cannot emphasize this enough. What I am so concerned about in our Pentecostal and charismatic world today are people who are being taught that their ecstatic feelings give them justification to trump what the Bible unambiguously says is true. They are being taught that if they are able to work themselves or allow themselves to come into a kind of frenzy of uncontrolled feeling and emotion, that that is when they are most in tune with the word of God and the will of God. And the Bible says, no, friends, that is so dangerous. If you find a person 
who believes that their own frenzy of emotion, their own strong feeling is all the evidence they need of the will of God, I can promise you, you will find a person who is spiritually unstable. Because the only stability that we have is the revealed word of God by which we govern everything about our daily lives, including our own senses, our own feelings, our own emotional reactions. Friends, we need this doctrinal correction, not only for ourselves to be stable, but we need to be those who in love are willing to provide this kind of doctrinal correction in our Christian world today. And that's where I want to close tonight. My message to you is this. Don't seek to speak with tongues. You're not missing out on something. You're not missing out on something in light of the broad categories of scripture that God is intending you to crave or to say, I can't be filled with the spirit unless I speak with this. I am also suggesting that we should not forbid to speak with tongues. We should always keep this gift in light of the very important contextual limitations and guardrails and care and caution that scripture brings alongside it. And that suggests practically, I think, for all of us, a couple things. One, is that if you are involved or you are confronting someone in your life who is purporting to speak with tongues, a wonderful thing is to approach them with the love that says, how do you relate to the word of God on this subject? How do you relate to the truths that we see in the word of God for regulating what you are purporting to experience here? And ultimately trusting that God is able to direct their exercise, that is God is able to direct their own experience in order to conform them to the image of Christ. It also means that if any of you who are listening here today do believe you exercise that gift of tongues, the important aspect of charity from your perspective is not to look at those who do not as those who are somehow less than you, who are less spiritually sensitive than you, or those of you who are, or those who are even closed off to the work of the Spirit in the first place. It is important in all things that this more excellent way be that which produces love indeed as it stands on the basis of doctrinal correction. So friends, as we seek clarity on this gift of tongues, may I encourage you to look at the whole counsel of God, to stand in, 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 in real clarity and conviction on what is plain in scripture about this gift of tongues and how it is to be used and how especially it is not to be abused. But may we all follow what Paul tells us is the more excellent way of love that seeks to build up and edify one another never in contradiction to what we see in the revealed word of God, but all the time and in all places subject to it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we trust that your word gives clarity and your word gives light. And Father, on a subject like this in which literally hundreds of millions of Christians are divided from one another, we want to let your word speak.
And Father, we look with concern and sobriety to the doctrinal error and even heresy that marks in many cases so much of a movement that emphasizes the centrality of this spiritual gift. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to rightly divide your word of truth, that you would help us to expose, even where we have influence in our own lives, areas of deception, areas of of real hindrance to your work. And Father, give us also the the conviction and the confidence to be able to stand on the truth of your word, to stand with humility and love, but also to exercise, Lord, the gifts that you have given us for the edification of the body of Christ. Let's pause with our heads bowed. Whatever your position on this issue is, whether or not you have been convinced by my study, my encouragement to you is, how are you operating your spiritual gift to edify? How would God call you to edify those who see things differently on this issue than you do? What areas would he have for you to speak truth, to encourage, and to exhort? Father, thank you that your son ascended up on high. He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Father, these gifts are meant to edify and strengthen the body of Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would each be equipped and renewed in our desire to build up those who you have put in our path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.